Good morning, everybody. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church and the Overflow Guys. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We love you. Uh, Perry, Oklahoma, Church on the Square, Pastor Brian Ahern, Tina, uh, we love you so much. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Started a, a new sermon series last week entitled 24 Hours. Uh, we're taking a look at the very last day in the life of Jesus, his very, very last day. Walking through that very slowly. I believe you can learn a lot about a man by watching him die. And so we are going to look at the death of Jesus between now and Easter. Matthew chapter 27. If you haven't heard the miracle news from the Franklin campus, uh, we have grandparents who are about to have a baby. <laughs> grandparents about to have a baby. Uh, not, not Charlie and Wilma Brooks, that would be awesome. Uh, but almost as good, have you heard? Eric and Natasha Walker are going to have a baby. Yeah. You know the grandparents. Eric says his grandchildren are going to watch his baby. <laughs> I think that's so funny. It's not a joke, people. Uh, Eric and Natasha Walker are, are expecting a baby. I, I just, I, I love that so much. It, it really, really is <laughs> just one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. But I'll be really, really honest with you. There was, uh, there was a time in my life when that news would have been very, very hard for me. And those of you who've known me long and known me and Casey long, you, you understand how at one point we, we desperately wanted more children. You understand? Well, we desperately wanted more children. And, and news like that uh, would be just the sort of thing that would have made my heart want to be so bitter. That disappointment, not getting what you pray for, not getting what you expect from God, it's a dangerous kind of poison to your heart because truly it can turn into a real kind of bitterness if you don't learn how to work through it. As a pastor, as a believer, and I know a lot of you who talk to others in the world, you understand that in the world there are some atheists and there are some agnostics and there are some people who are very, very difficult and hard uh, when it comes to listening to the word of Scripture. But, but truly, I don't run into as many of those people. That Those aren't the ones out there. Those aren't so many of, of our neighbors, or the ones that we can't get to come to church. It's not the, the non-believers or the atheists that, that I bump up against very often. It's the ones who are just very, very profoundly disappointed with God, disappointed with Christ, that disappointed with the church. It, it's difficult. People pray, but people believe. They, they have this sense that they come to Christ, that, that, that somehow certain things will happen, and when those things don't happen, that, that disappointment becomes a real obstacle to faith. And some of you have experienced that kind of disappointment. God didn't do for you what you wanted him to do, what you prayed that he would do, what you expected. Maybe you expected him to, to heal your mama, or, or maybe you expected that when you come to Christ, you would have a church full of, of friends. Maybe you expected when you, you came to Christ, your children would never rebel, or your children would never have problems. Maybe you expected uh, the kinds of things I've expected through the years. And when we don't get what we expect, it's the disappointment that, that sets in so, so deeply. I want us to look very closely at several moments in, in this chapter 27 because I want you to see that, that when you don't get what you expect from Jesus, it is because you have expected him to do what he did not come to do. 
let's pay attention to what he came to do. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, if we're going through the 24 hours, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, then recognize this morning we are at about 6 a.m. Friday morning, about 6 a.m. Last Sunday night where we left off, Jesus had been arrested. That was sometime in the night. He was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane. As you know, the soldiers took him with swords and, and clubs. In that night, in those hours, and we don't exactly know how many Jesus was taken into a kind of, of sham courtroom with this Jewish Sanhedrin. Understand, they've already decided they want to put him to death. They just don't know how to do that. They have no charges against a truly innocent man, and Jesus is not interested in defending himself. And so they take him uh, in chapter 27 to Pontius Pilate. In chapter 27, it's, it's interesting. There's an episode that happens in those first 10 verses and then an episode that begins at verse 11. We're going to look at both episodes. But understand, these are things that probably in some ways happen simultaneously. Uh, but this is how the story goes. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1. Uh, read the word of the Lord with me. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Notice that? They want to put him to death. They just can't figure out how. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Okay, the, the scene changes here. Notice this. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. Let that sink in. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized what? That he had been condemned to die. What did he think was going to happen? That's an important thought. What did he think was going to happen? So Judas took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priest and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What the scripture says there is I have betrayed innocent blood. Okay, innocent blood. Follow the blood through this chapter. Pay attention to where it ends up. I have betrayed innocent blood. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. You see to it, they said. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. The leading priest picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said, since it was payment for murder. What they said was this is blood money. Watch the blood. After some discussion, they finally decided to buy the potter's field, and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. This fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah that says they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor, are you the king of the Jews, the governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, 
Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah, he knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, crucify him. Why? Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. What did they say? Let his blood be upon us, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Years ago, there was a, a gospel singer named Wendy Bagwell. You remember uh, back in the day when they named men Wendy? Uh, Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters, I think, was that, was that the, the name of the group? Uh, Wendy Bagwell used to tell a, a great story about singing. His group was singing in a, in a little church in West Virginia. And in the middle of the singing, they brought the snakes out. It's a snake-handling church. They didn't advertise that part. But when Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters started singing, they brought snakes out. Wendy Bagwell kind of inched over to the pastor and said, Pastor, where is your back door? The pastor said, we ain't got a back door. Wendy Bagwell said, where would you like one? <laughs> man, that's me, man. I'm busting out the back door. No snake-handling for me. We might do... Caterpillar handling or something around here? Oh, oh, my. Several years ago, there was a famous snake handling evangelist by the name of, of, of Reverend John Wayne Brown. John Wayne Brown. And he was preaching uh, a big crusade uh, in uh, Sandy Mountain, Alabama, I believe, at a place called Rock House Holiness Church. In the middle of his sermon, uh, Reverend Brown uh, took out a, a giant four-foot-long four yellow uh, rattlesnake, and he began to handle it. It was part of his sermon. He was preaching the text that the snake handlers love. It's a verse in the book of Mark that says followers of Jesus would be able to, to do things like take up deadly serpents. And, and Reverend Brown believed that taking up a deadly serpent like that was the ultimate test and demonstration of faith. So as he's preaching, he, he took out that, that giant yellow rattlesnake. And all the people in the congregation watched and listened. And he preached on faith. And he preached about Jesus and how Jesus gives power to handle deadly serpents. And, and in the middle of that sermon, middle of that sermon, that yellow rattlesnake latched onto his hand. 
It, it, it struck. It, it, it bit, but it didn't just bite. It, it, it dug in and, and hung there. So the congregation gasped. Everybody could see what had happened. That snake was now hanging from his hand. Reverend Brown was determined to continue preaching, and he began to speak even stronger about Jesus and how no matter what happens, Jesus says that his followers will be able to take up deadly serpents. And he's saying this now with a yellow rattlesnake latched onto his hand. He tried to continue preaching, but the people recognized that something was going wrong. And within a few minutes, Reverend Brown collapsed on the stage. Collapsed on the stage. The congregation gathered around now praying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And they bring out an electric fan to cool him. His body just, just, just was set on fire with heat. Jesus, 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 the congregation prayed. Reverend Brown died right in front of that congregation, flat on the floor. His five children were, were in the congregation. They watched him die. Understand, their mama had died in a service five years previously. They went to live with their grandparents, who, by the way, are also snake handlers. What do people in the congregation do after that? For that matter, those children, those, those five children, what do they believe now? When you've always heard that, 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 that Jesus would let you take up deadly serpents, and when the man who shows you how that's when he picks it up, when he collapses dead on the ground, then what do you believe now? What do you do when, when Jesus doesn't match your assumptions, when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do after that? It's a very, very critical question because a lot of us have struggled. We have struggled with Jesus. We have struggled with faith. We have struggled with the way that faith has not met our assumptions, with the way Jesus has not always answered us, has not been the Jesus of our expectations. We struggle with that. But I want to say to you, I want to say it over and over and over to you today, when Jesus doesn't meet your expectations... When Jesus disappoints you, you've got to understand you have begun to expect him to do what he did not come to do. You cannot expect him to do what he did not come to do. He is not going to be the Jesus of your assumptions. He's Jesus all by himself. Do you understand? Because this is what Judas doesn't seem to understand. Notice if you have sort of a shallow or a very, uh, very, very uh, loose sort of uh, familiarity with the story, you might not really understand what it means in verse 3 when it says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. That's very interesting, and it makes the story of Judas very complicated. In all the Easter pageants, you just want Judas to be a bad guy. Judas is just the bad guy who, for some reason, doesn't like Jesus, hates Jesus, and so he turns against him. He was always a crook, the Bible says. He was stealing money out of the treasury the whole time. You know how he is. You know how people like that are. It was greed. It was hatred. It was just Judas who betrayed Jesus, but, 
But it's more complicated than that. When Judas sees that Jesus is condemned to die, he's filled with remorse, which tells us one thing. Judas didn't expect that to happen. I don't really know. We don't know the heart of Judas, but we can know from this verse that whatever Judas was thinking, he didn't expect that it was going to lead to this. He was not trying to see Jesus put to death. That was not his aim. That was not his purpose. So what was Judas doing? We really don't know. We cannot bring him back and ask him. But you can put some pieces together by reading the New Testament. Read all four Gospels and sort of gather a picture of who Judas was. Most very careful Bible readers who, who read the Gospels sort of come to the conclusion that Judas was one of those in, in his day that, that were called zealots. That they were called zealots. In our day, we would probably call them, honestly, terrorists. Judas was like a terrorist. Judas was a young man who was Jewish, who, who lived there, right there in, in the Holy Land in Jerusalem. But there was a terrible, terrible problem in, in his day. It was a political problem. It was a military problem. It was a government problem. The whole issue was the Roman Empire had come in and conquered his homeland. The Romans had come in and taken over Israel, taken over Jerusalem. So now his country was no longer free, and he hated that. He was a patriot. He, he loved his country. He loved his homeland, and he probably despised the Romans. We call these guys zealots, and we know from Scripture that a number of Jesus' disciples were among the zealots. And you can understand it. If something like that happened in our country, if a foreign, a foreign government came and invaded and occupied our country, if every time you turned around there were foreign soldiers standing there on the street corner, if your house of worship had been taken over and now governed by a foreign, foreign authority, there are a lot of young men who would not be able to take that. They would pick up arms. They'd become terrorist. And the zealots were terrorist. And from what we can put together from Judas's life, it, it sounds like Judas could have been one of those very, very uh, zealous terrorists. So naturally, he would have been attracted to Jesus. Jesus came as the Messiah. Jesus came as, as the, the Son of God. Jesus came on the scene as one who was going to set his people free. Jesus came on the scene as the Savior. Jesus came on the scene as the King of the Jews, as he's called here in, in this, very, this very episode. And that's exactly what Judas would have wanted. Some kind of king, somebody who could come, a, a new kind of Moses who would set the people free, who would somehow defeat the Romans, who would return the homeland to, to God's people freely. That's what the zealots wanted. Maybe that's what Judas wanted. He, he wanted Jesus to be the, this, this, this man of power, this man of war, this one who would come and conquer the Romans and drive out the army Set his people free. The thing is, 
That's not exactly how Jesus fulfilled his mission. Jesus did not conform to Judas's expectations. Turn back with me to one of Jesus' first sermons, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's a long sermon. Y'all know about long sermons, don't you? Matthew chapter 5, we're just going to dig into one place, verse 38. Okay, think about Judas. Think about the zealots who were very attracted to Jesus because they saw in Jesus all of the hopes of Israel. All of the hopes of a nation uh, released from bondage and set free again. And listen to Jesus. He doesn't turn out to be that kind, that kind of king. Jesus preaching. Verse 38. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, Offer the other cheek also. Turn the other cheek. Jesus preached, turn the other cheek. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Now listen to this one. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Okay, zero right there with me. If a soldier... Jesus is preaching to real people in in, in a real situation. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, understand, this happened all the time. It happened all the time. The Roman soldiers were brutal toward the Jews. that They hated the Jews. And it was sort of understood that if a Roman soldier commanded you to carry his gear. The, the, the soldiers might be on the march, but, but they didn't want to have to carry their heavy gear. So they could just pull anybody out of the crowd. They could pull anybody out of the crowd and say, you carry my stuff. Now the Jews hated that, and they rebelled against that. And actually the Romans passed a law, the, the Roman impressment law, which said that the limit was a mile. The Roman soldiers could pull you out of the crowd and make you carry their gear, but only for a mile. That was the Roman law, the Roman impressment law, trying to protect the rights of the peasants. So Jesus is making reference to a Roman law here. The Roman law said if a soldier demands that you carry his gear a mile, that's the law. But what does Jesus say? Go ahead and go an extra mile. For a Roman soldier occupying your homeland, a Roman soldier who despises your people, a Roman soldier who would spit on you just as soon as look at you. Jesus says when a soldier like that demands you carry his gear a mile, you go ahead and go an extra mile. This is not the king. This is not the the, the conqueror that Judas is looking for. Do you understand that? This is not what the zealots would have been looking for. And it sounds like a number of Jesus' disciples really were from that party of zealots, the the terrorist group. Notice the passage we read last Sunday night. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, an interesting thing happens. When the soldiers arrive, when the mob arrives with their own clubs and swords, the disciples do what? They pull swords. You understand? At least some of the disciples... They pack heat. They carry swords. 
these guys, at least some of them, Peter, obviously, were ready for a fight. Peter had a knife on him. We don't think of it very often. But these disciples, some of them anyway, were ready for a fight. And when that mob arrived with clubs and swords, you understand, they were poised for that. They had been waiting for that. They had knives on them. Judas is probably one of those zealots. Judas is one of those knife-carrying men who loves his country and loves freedom and despises the Romans. And he has always been hoping that Jesus was going to be the one who would drive out the Romans and set the people free. What's a Messiah good for if he's not going to set his people free? So Judas takes matters into his own hands. It looks like Judas takes matters into his own hands. Judas does believe in Jesus. He knows Jesus' power. He has been with Jesus since day one. He has seen the miracles He knows Jesus' authority. He believes everything Jesus has ever said. He doesn't necessarily appreciate, though, so far, the way Jesus has fulfilled the mission. Because, you see, Jesus has not been that, that man of war. Instead, Jesus has been that prince of peace. Jesus has come, and instead of causing this uh, amazing rebellion, instead, Jesus has gone all over the countryside forgiving. Turns out that Jesus so far has not been this, this incredible conquering king. Instead, he's this gentle, forgiving Savior. Maybe Judas thought he could force his hand. Maybe Judas thought that that he could somehow force Jesus like into Superman's phone booth. You know what I mean? Just just put Jesus in a corner. Judas thinks maybe if if I light the match, then somehow the fire will begin that that, that will burn and purge the Romans from our land. Maybe Judas thinks if if I can force Jesus somehow into the fight, then Jesus is going to come out fighting. So Judas goes, and he does tell the priests where they can find Jesus. In the garden, Judas knows those men will have swords. He knows his men will have swords too. Maybe he's thinking that if he can shove Jesus into Superman's phone booth, that somehow Jesus will rip open his shirt and come out with that super S on his chest. Maybe Judas is thinking that that if he can begin to just set things in motion, that then Jesus will somehow take over and conquer and be the Jesus that Judas has always assumed he was going to be. But that's not how it turns out. That's not how it turns out at all. That's not how it turns out. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. He took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders, and he said, what? Verse 4, say the words with me. I have sinned. I have sinned, he declared. I have betrayed innocent blood. That's not what he intended to do. Apparently, that's not what he expected. 
I have sinned. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out, hanged himself. Okay, okay, let's stop and understand. Understand what happens when, when, when Jesus doesn't match your expectations. Because Judas expected this conquering king. Judas expected this, this, this man of battle, this man who would set his people free. And truly, Jesus came to set his people free. You understand that, don't you? Jesus did come to set his people free, but not in the way Judas expected. Jesus was not the man of war. Jesus was the prince of peace. Jesus was not the man who said, let's kill the soldiers. Let's grab our knives and kill the soldiers. Jesus is the man who said, if a soldier asks you to carry his pack for a mile, you go too. That was Jesus. He's not this man of war. He was a forgiving Savior. Jesus came as a forgiving Savior. And Judas could not accept that. He would not accept Jesus as a forgiving Savior. So the horrible tragedy of Judas's life is since he would never accept Jesus as a forgiving Savior, when what Judas really needed was a forgiving Savior, he had nowhere to turn. I've sinned, he says. I have sinned. And the priests say, that would be your problem. The priests say, that would be your problem. Do you understand? Am I making any kind of sense? Judas wanted a, a violent Jesus, a, a warrior conquering Jesus. He didn't want a forgiving Jesus, but in the end, Judas came to the point where what he needed was forgiveness. And he had nowhere to turn. He wouldn't accept Jesus as the one who forgives sins. Understand? So there was nowhere to turn. Which brings us to Pilate. Pilate is a businessman. Pilate is a politician. And he simply expects Jesus to make his job easier. That's all he's looking for. Understand, Pilate has no soft spot in his heart for Jesus or any other Jew. Read the history books. Pontius Pilate was brutal toward the Jews. He despised them, and they despised him. And he despises the entire bother of this whole operation. He knows what the Jewish priests are trying to make him do, and he would love to find a way not to do it, not necessarily because he cares about Jesus, but simply because he would love to just ram it back up the nose of the Jews. He hates the Jews. And the Jews want Pilate to put this man to death. They bring Jesus to him at 6 in the morning. They bring him in, and all they want to do is have Pilate put him to death. Pilate's just looking for Jesus to somehow make this easy for him. Jesus really hasn't come to make it any easier for him. Do you understand that? Pilate's got a decision to make. He has a decision to make. But for some reason, it becomes a very difficult decision to make. Primarily because the issue of Jesus' innocence becomes larger and larger and larger. Pilate's no fool. He knows the law, and he can see plainly that Jesus hasn't broken any laws. 
So Pilate calls Jesus in for a private consultation and says, are you really some kind of king? Are you really the king of the Jews? You see, it's a funny question because in that day and age, I guess you'd say Pilate was the king of the Jews. He was the sovereign ruler in that region. He sort of was the king of the Jews at that point. So he's asking Jesus. He doesn't believe it. He actually wants Jesus to jump in and defend himself here. Jesus, just give me something. Give me something here. Defend yourself. Make my job easy. I really don't want to put you to death. I would just love to set you free. Just give me something, Jesus. Are you really a king? You notice Jesus doesn't give him anything. Jesus is not interested in defending himself. Somewhere early in the morning, right after the view went off, Pilate's wife calls her husband and says, Listen, man, I, there, there's a man in front of you this morning, isn't there? Because I had a dream about him. And my dream, he's innocent and nothing good's going to come out of this, honey. You need to let that man go. Strange. Strange. So, so at this point, Pilate really wants to perhaps let him go, but... But he doesn't know how to make the decision. Do you understand? And he simply wants somebody to make the decision easier for him. A whole lot of us are in that same situation at this very moment. Because this is the thing. Jesus is coming as the forgiving Savior. Jesus is coming as the Christ, the Messiah. It really does force a choice upon every one of us. And, and to be really, really honest with you, most of us would rather not have to choose. We would love to push that responsibility off on somebody else. We don't really want to have to go on the record of having ever made a choice about Jesus. That's why you'll meet so many people who just sort of ride the fence. That They'll come to church on Sunday, but, but honestly, there's no commitment there. In their hearts, they've never really made a decision about Jesus. They're just sort of still waiting on that, postponing that, or shifting the responsibility. You know, these are the people who say, you know... You know, I've just never really thought much about it because all those churches are just so traditional. You understand? It's the church's fault. Those churches are just full of hypocrites. I know too many hypocrites. I've no, I've never come to Jesus because I just know a lot of hypocrites. Really, really, yeah. You know, I, I've thought a lot about Jesus, but nobody's ever really answered all of my questions. Seriously. You understand the, the games we play where we just sort of postpone the decision? But just like Pilate, you've got to understand something. He's not going away. Jesus is not going away. He will continue to come back. He will continue to stand there. He is not going to make it any easier for you. You're going to have to make a choice. Are you going to follow him? Are you going to believe in him? Or are you going to turn away? You may think that you're going to postpone this choice. You may think that you can shift the responsibility to, to others. But I'm telling you, you stand alone before him and you will make a choice. And he didn't come to make it any easier for you. Which brings us to Barabbas. Pilate realizes that it's, that it's Passover and we don't really know how ingrained this custom was, but, but it was apparently a custom that at the Passover, as a way of keeping the Jews from, from rioting, 
you would set somebody free. Remember, the Passover is a celebration of the, of the captives in Egypt being set free. So apparently there was a kind of custom at Passover time that, that the Roman governor would sometimes just take a prisoner and set him free, kind of as a token, uh, a, a token toward the Jewish people in their tradition, just trying to keep them in line. So Pilate says, it's, it's Passover time, and there's a custom that, that a prisoner gets set free. And, and so Pilate goes, and he pulls up out of the pit the most notorious, the, the most despicable, the most hated prisoner that he had in the jail at the time. He yanks him up out of the pit, a man named Barabbas. And he yanks him up and puts him out there on the stage beside Jesus, the Messiah. And he says, I, it's the day to set a prisoner free. So which prisoner should I choose, Jesus the Messiah or, or Barabbas? Which prisoner should be set free? Who gets to live today? The people make the choice. Whom do they choose? Barabbas, Barabbas. I, I, don't, I don't really know what sense to make of this, but one of the real interesting, ironic parts of the entire story of Jesus' last 24 hours is this man right here, this man named Barabbas. In other places in Scripture, you'll find his first name. Barabbas is his surname, his family name. He has a first name. Anybody know Barabbas' first name? Barabbas' first name is actually Jesus. Jesus Barabbas is his name. Look it up. Barabbas' first name is Jesus. And, and that name Barabbas, it, it's a surname. In, in Hebrew, among the Jews, uh, last names often begin with the word, with, with, that, with that prefix bar or, or ben. Bar, uh, Barabbas. What does that prefix bar mean? Son of. In the New Testament, Barnabas, his name means son of encouragement. So, so, so bar at the front always refers to, to son of. So, so Jesus Barabbas, his, his name is literally Jesus, son of Abbas. What's that word mean? Abbas. When Jesus would pray, he would often begin his prayers with that word Abba, which means father. So Barabbas' name is actually Jesus, son of the father. It's just so ironic, it's so strange that at this moment, this critical moment, when Pilate puts these two men out there for the people to choose, it's Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus, Son of the Father. But everybody knows that Jesus Barabbas is a wicked man. Everybody knows that he's a, a wicked man. He's a robber. He's a killer. He's the most notorious, hated man in the land. Which one gets to live? Which one's going to die today? You get to choose. Jesus the Messiah or, or, or Jesus Barabbas. Who's it going to be? Don't forget something. Don't forget that it's really not the people's choice. Don't misunderstand this. 
it's not the people who choose that Jesus, the Messiah, will die for Jesus Barabbas. That's not their choice. Because Jesus, the Messiah, has already made that choice. He came to die. He, He came to die for Jesus Barabbas and all the rest of us. Jesus came to die for him. Can you imagine being Barabbas? It is the day scheduled for your execution. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's guilty. He knows he's hated. He's being kept in the the pit, the lowest, darkest, loneliest place in the prison. He's kept in the pit. But somehow, first thing in the morning, that that, that rock opens and and he's yanked out of the pit and and pushed out into the sunlight. What does he think is going to happen? What does Judas Barabbas, what does Jesus Barabbas expect at that moment? Pulled out of the pit and thrust into the sunlight. Where does he think he is? What does he think is going to happen? He assumes it's his execution. Do you understand? He assumes that as soon as the rooster crows, as soon as the sun comes up, he's yanked out. He's going to the cross. He's going to be crucified. It is the day of his execution. He's condemned. He's guilty. He's hated. He's dead. He's just as good as dead and pulled out of that dark pit and pushed into the sunlight. Before he even knows what's happening, he's set free. Before he even knows what's happening, his chains are gone. He walks off a free man, and somebody takes his place. He wasn't expecting that. He wasn't expecting anybody to die for him. Jesus came to die for him. You understand, in this story, if you can identify with anyone, you have to learn to identify with with Barabbas. All of us were sinners. All of us guilty. All of us condemned. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. Everyone condemned. Everyone in the pit. Everyone scheduled for execution, condemnation. All of us have sinned. But there was one who came to do for us what we needed somebody to do for us. And who does this? Who could do this? Who could take the place of the entire human race? Who could possibly be a substitute for the entire world of sinners? Who could do that? Jesus, Son of the Father. Jesus, the Messiah who never sinned. This is why he came. I I know that in your life there is so much that you want and so much that you hope that faith in Christ will bring to you. I understand that more deeply than you possibly can know. I know how it is to want things and need things and cry out to God for things. I know all about that. But sometimes in life, we do not get what we expect. 
Sometimes in life, Jesus does not shrink himself to match our expectations. He simply will not do that. He should not do that because he has a reason that he comes. You understand? Because he knows that no matter what it is that I want, what I need is like Judas, somebody to forgive me of my sins. I need forgiveness from my sins. Everything else is beside the point. I need a Savior who forgives my sins. Do you understand? And like Barabbas, I need somebody who will die in my place. I need someone who will stand in my place of condemnation and give me his position of salvation. I need someone to die for me. Are you listening? You need a Savior to forgive your sins. And you need someone to die for you. And that is why he came. That is why he came. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus. Thank you. Lord, like Judas, many of us know what it is. Many of us know what it is to be absolutely destroyed by regret. We know what it is, Lord, to have done things that we can't undo. We know what it is, Lord, to say things or do things that set in motion consequences that we didn't think we were choosing. We know what that is. We know what it is to rather think of dying than to think of living with our sin, Lord. We need so desperately forgiveness for our sin. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. Oh, God, like Barabbas, every single one of us, every human being on the face of the planet, living, Lord, in darkness, living with with the sword of condemnation dangling over their head, Lord, we need somebody who could take our place, somebody who could pay the price for our sins, someone to die for us. Thank you, Jesus. Pulled out of darkness and thrust into light, Lord. We never expected this. Never expected salvation. Never expected such grace. Never expected a new chance at life. But that's what you give us. That is why you come. Some of us live as if we're disappointed with you. Oh, Lord Jesus, you do not disappoint. You do for us, not always what we want, but always what we need. We need someone to forgive our sins. We need someone to die for us. And that is what you have done. Thank you. Praise you. Thank you. We pray humbly, gratefully, in your precious name.
Amen.